Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of LSAT Pros. I'm Steve Schwartz from the LSAT blog. And I'm Graham Blake from LSAT Hacks, and we're here to answer your LSAT questions. So the first thing is a discussion of a perennial LSAT issue. It's question stem or stimulus on logical reasoning. And this is a very large debate. Who will decide which way? Uh, for me, I guess it's pretty straightforward. I read the, the stimulus first, except I don't always. Um, in the sense that I will first try and read and understand the stimulus. And my view for this is that that's the information that we're given. And you want to do it like when you're free of bias from thinking about what the question type is. You just want to identify exactly what's being said and understand that. And then later think, like, is this a flawed argument or not? I mean, sometimes it'll naturally occur to you actually when reading. That can be a further benefit of not looking at the stimulus. You might naturally spot a flaw rather than just trying to look for one. Um, but if I get stuck, then I'll just go and read the question stem uh, because I find it gives my mind like a little bit of a pause. So that's how I do it. So I, I'm on the other end of this spectrum. I like to read the question stem first. And my I think argument, we have to end the podcast right there. Yeah, yeah, we're done. Like, we, we can't, we can't continue under irreconcilable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I didn't always read it first. Actually, I tried reading stimulus first, but over time, I found that question stem first actually worked a bit better for me personally. And the reason is that I feel that it it helps me have a sense of what to look for going in. If it's a strengthen or weaken or flaw or necessary assumption question, I know there's some kind of gap in the argument that I'm looking to address in some way. Whereas for an inference question or must be true, most supported, cannot be true, we're more likely to be dealing with a fact set. And even if we're dealing with an argument, we don't. our job is not to look for the gap there. That's not the objective. So I, I feel that question stem first gives me a sense of how to approach the stimulus going in. Yeah, and I can say, interestingly, when I write my explanations, I have the opposite approach. I actually look at the stem first, I guess partly because I'm writing down what the question type is, but I look at the stem first, then I do the stimulus and I think like, okay, what's the reasoning, what's the conclusion, because that's like the things that I break out in the explanations. And then I think about like the flaws. So I'm doing it like more component-based. And <laughs> one thing just occurred to me is that uh, when you listen to advice from anyone who's doing the LSAT, you always want to be cautious that like they might just be naturally good at it and they haven't actually tested the things that they're doing. So like Steve is doing uh, STEM first by choice because he actually like tried one, then found the other way was more efficient. I think I just always did stimulus first and I was always pretty good at the LSAT. So it's entirely possible that STEM first might be better for me um, and that I just haven't like bothered to... Like, I, I don't need it, so I haven't done it. Actually, I don't know. It's it's hard to evaluate yourself on ease if you haven't actually done a trial. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it'd be hard if you're in a pattern of doing it one way. It'd be hard to actually consistently try doing it the other way. So let's say, Graham, if you were to do a, a test on this or an experiment, do you think that you could actually do, let's say, two or three timed LR sections and force yourself to only read stem first or to only read stimulus first that's a good point probably not like i'm working against like years of uh brain patterns here and it probably doesn't make sense to change uh just because of that switching cost to be like switching to one of the non-qwerty keyboard layouts like maybe it's better but 
yeah. Like, yeah, there's an LSAT question about QWERTY versus the versus the other ones, right? Yeah. yeah. But I yeah. think that... Uh, so. No, sorry, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I, was I, just, I was just going to go uh, a little bit more in depth about my journey on this. I actually used to read Stimulus first for a couple of reasons, in part because that's the order in which the text is in a question, but also because I was using the Logical Reasoning Bible, and that's what they recommend. And they had their arguments for it, like you don't want to be contaminated by what the question stem says. And so, of course, that's perfectly fine to have that approach on it. But, And I think there are plenty of top scorers who, who do it both ways. Obviously, the power score people, Dave Killeran and Robin Singh of Testmasters, they have their arguments and their ways of doing it. And of course, they've gotten great scores. But you, know, myself and many others have gotten great scores doing question stem first. And I think that ultimately it doesn't necessarily matter that much. And you could try both ways and see what works for you. I've heard from many students over the years who tried one way, then switched and tried the other way, and they think that's what unlocked it for them. And I think probably there, there could be something to that, but I think overall, it's just as you deepen your understanding of the LSAT, you're gonna get better regardless of which style you're using. But I think the fact that there are so many top scores on both sides of this debate suggests that it ultimately doesn't matter that much. Yeah, it's really something people just sort of overthink and that it's not that important because if it was important, every LSAT instructor would come down on one side. You know, like, are there some people that are debating, like, to do diagrams or not on logic games? No. <laughs> Everybody says do diagrams. So you need to do diagrams. But for question stem stimulus, you get these different answers from different quarters. So uh, I don't I don't think it's that important. I also wanted to, to raise one thing, though, that occurred to me is that, like, a, a recurring theme in this podcast is, like, brains are different, and the best strategy for one brain might be different from the best strategy for another brain. So a couple things that I know about myself just going through, like, sometimes people ask me about, like, the best order to, in which to tackle questions. And I know you, you talked about this a lot, Steve, about, like, order of logic games. Or about some people ask the same, but, like, reading comp, what order should I do? For me personally, like, I just go in order on everything I do. Like any attempt to like switch from the order introduces a factor that I have to think about and it makes me worse. I do know that much. And I'm wondering if like my stimulus first, you know, despite the reason that I just gave like, oh, well, you want to be unbiased or whatever. I think actually my brain just might just like going in order and it's like the easiest thing for it to do. And if it went out of order, it would be like, oh, why am I going out of order? I've got to like remember where I am. And it just would, I would like dislike it, but for not the reasons that, people talk about when they talk about these like i haven't actually heard anyone talk about just pure like order liking simplicity as a reason but that might be the strongest reason in my case um, i think that's perfectly fair i mean there are students who have talked about should they do the logical reasoning section backwards and crazy things like that and my answer to that of course would be of course not that's crazy especially <laughs> given the order of difficulty so i i do think there's something to be said for or for just doing things in the order given that that is simple in some respects but again, depending on your type of brain, like you might have less of a cost to switch in the order than I would. And so it can become a viable strategy because there, there are some like obvious benefits in certain circumstances to doing things in a different order. So there's something you have to value about it yourself. Um, the other thing that occurred to me as a result of this discussion is that, you know, you talk about like you see a stem and it tells you what to go for. Whereas like, I think the way my brain evaluates stuff is like, I just look at it and I try and think about like, what is it saying? And then the like the prephrase or the looking for the flaw or whatever just sort of comes as a consequence of that. As in, if I understand everything that's being said, if there's a flaw, I'll see it. So I'm not really changing my method based on STEM, except for 
taking the information I got from the stimulus and maybe making a more specific prephrase. Um, so I think there's less benefit to me to doing STEM first, whereas if you have the type of mind that will like take a different approach depending on what's happening, then you get more of a benefit than I would from switching. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good point. I think it does come down to what you're going to do with that information. Like for me, when I see the inference question stem, I'm thinking, okay, well, this is likely to be a fact set, but even if it's not, I don't need to start thinking about whatever holes might be in the argument. But for a flaw question, okay, they're telling me there's a gap in this argument. It's, you know, it's an argument, there's a gap, and I should view this argument from the perspective as being fundamentally flawed where I'm not giving the arguer the benefit of the doubt. And that means... It may be a classic logical fallacy like ad hominem, correlation causation, equivocation, circular reasoning, or it may just be that there is something that they failed to consider that they should have considered. And my job is going to be to ID and articulate that flaw for myself and ideally prephrase it before scanning through the choices. Whereas if it was a strengthening question or a sufficient assumption question, I'd be taking a totally different approach. Yeah. Whereas by contrast for me, like even when I'm doing a question like method of reasoning or identify the conclusion, and even when I'm doing it for an explanation where I've like, I've already read the stem, I still just naturally see like, oh, they made like a little flaw here. And that's just like part of my process of understanding what's being said. I'm in some way like juggling around all the factors and seeing like, does this check out? Does this not check out? Like, I think it's a fundamental part of how I think about any argument I'm presented with. And so they're not like two separate modes for me. Um, and even like on a must be true, I'm just thinking like thinking about what factually they're saying. I'm still doing that on an argument. I'm thinking about what are they saying factually. Um, so for me, it like, I guess I don't distinguish between modes. And so therefore just going in order makes more sense. When you have a student who has the opposite approach, how does that impact your, your tutoring, if at all? Interesting question it's never come up in that like no one's articulated it in these terms. Um, I'm, I'm sure though, like in moments when someone's like, Oh, how should I look for a flaw? Then we'll talk about like how to look for flaws and so on. But no one's ever asked about like those two differences. Like I actually hadn't thought about it in these terms until this podcast. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? I can think about it a bit more. Well, yeah, it comes up for me just because uh, I was recently talking with a student who who does stimulus first while, while I do question stem first. And my answer to him was like, it, you know, it really doesn't matter. Like if it's working for you, that's fine. It ultimately doesn't really impact that much our, our sessions because we're still talking through what's the reasoning in the stimulus, what makes the right answer right, what makes the wrong answers wrong, what makes the wrong answers tempting what makes the right answer is discouraging. So we're still walking through the same analysis process. I think that what you do in the moment during a timed exam in terms of your general flow doesn't necessarily relate that directly to our discussion of the reasoning. Oh yeah, now, now I see what you're saying. I thought you were asking like, what do I do when I have a student who like will approach one question one way, one the other way, because they're more like your style Whereas I'm like more organic and I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, yeah, when, when I ask like, how do I do like STEM first or STEM first? I usually just tell them it doesn't matter. And I agree that when we're talking about a question, we're mainly just breaking it down, which is a separate process from what happens when you're doing it in time conditions. So yeah, it doesn't really have that much of an impact. But I, I generally just tell people to just sort of 
see which way your mind wants to go and keeping the goal in mind so that you're actually moving in the right direction. Um, nonetheless, try and figure out what process is most efficient for your style, natural style of thinking to let you get to that goal. I agree, Graham. I think there's something intuitive where some people might gravitate towards one way and others might gravitate towards another way. And if it, if that's just your instinct, then run with it. For the first few years that I was tutoring, I actually was doing stimulus first. It actually, I wasn't even doing questions them first until later. It was through years of, of tutoring and coaching that I actually came around to prefer this style. But for the first few years, I didn't actually let myself try the other way because I thought I, I wasn't supposed to. Oh, that's very interesting. So you were already in the 170s before yeah. you like switched to the other method. Yeah, exactly. So that shed some additional light on just how unimportant it is to do it one way versus <laughs> the other. Like I could go back to doing it the other way if I wanted to, and I'm sure it would be fine. But this way just yeah. feels more natural to me. So there's no reason to try and put a lid on that if it works. Yeah. So the next question is, how can I save time on the games? I'm looking for any solid strategies I may not have yet employed. I recently tried using a highlighter set of my diagrams. The idea being that it would prevent me from erasing my main game setup, but I'm not sure this has helped. I've also begun to abandon practice of writing down all the rules since I find I often refer back to the stimulus anyway. I'm guessing by the stimulus they mean the paragraph. Um, this sounds to me like this person just needs to do like a total overhaul and start redoing some easy games and get a good diagram set up going on those easy games so that they can apply it to the harder games. Because like if you're not writing down the rules and you're referring back to the the, the rule setup, like just that is very far off from best practices. And it sounds like that's going to be holding you back on the games. Um, the highlighter I would also not recommend um, just because generally the most efficient thing is to have a main diagram that you just don't touch at all. And you make your uh, individual questions diagrams by those questions or in like a very clear space. I'm, I'm looking ahead here for uh, the digital LSAT. Um, you would then write them like in a separate part of the page. But basically you don't mix your main diagram with anything else. But I, I would just like get like some of the easiest games and get those done because they're still good practice for the method of like drawing little logic games diagrams. And I've got a on my article how to go faster on LSAT logic games. I've got like a little screenshot I took of like the way I arranged them. I'll include that in the show notes so you can see like just where I put the main diagram and where I put the other things. But uh, I, I would start from basics. Yeah, I think this person definitely needs an overhaul. Abandoning the practice of writing down the rules, I think, is a, is a huge mistake. Your diagramming of the rules can save you a tremendous amount of time because then you don't need to refer back to the lengthy LSAT language that describes those rules, especially when that those LSAT's articulation of the rules may be not to your advantage. If they, for example, they present, you know, X is on Y, X is on three, if Y is on five, when it really will then end up being Y five arrow X three. And so if you're referring back to their articulation, then you run the risk of getting messed up. Additionally, the highlighter, I agree with you, Graham, huge waste of time, not to your advantage. Switching between a highlighter and a pencil definitely will cost you some time. And you should never be in the position where you're erasing your main game setup. 
you have your main diagram in one place, you have your diagramming of the individual questions separately, and you can, at a glance, see all diagrams that you've drawn at any point. And that's especially useful in order to solve global questions later. One thing I do with my logic games explanations is I'll frequently skip around doing orientation, then local, then global. And so the local questions become a baseline of evidence or examples to then go back and solve the global questions later. And you'll see this in my YouTube video game video explanations for the vast majority of logic games, which I'll include a link to as well. And you can see how I, when I walk through games, I'll skip around, but I'll always have my local diagrams from previous questions available to help me solve the global ones later. Yeah. And I just want to add for like, we told them what not to do. So for how to get these basics down, apart from just like starting over and doing easy games, I think looking at like video explanations like Steve's, uh, looking at the diagram, I'm going to link, like just looking at something where you see how someone has drawn the main diagram and put that apart. And then you see they've drawn local things to put them separately. Just practice doing that. Practice having a main diagram that looks like someone else's good main diagram. Practice how to read it. Practice like what components you might want to modify. Cause like everyone has like their different tastes a little bit where like one thing doesn't make sense and you put in another thing, but practice making something that you can actually use because it sounds like whatever you were trying to do was like a worse system than doing nothing at all, which is why you like threw it in the trash and just didn't draw stuff. Cause like whatever you were doing, I don't, they didn't actually say what they did in there, but whatever you're doing must've been like so against your brain that it just <laughs> was like, felt like more effort than it was worth. You have to find a diagramming system that is worth doing because like diagrams aren't just like something we do for like, the normals and then we ourselves like don't draw things like we do diagrams because they make us better we also are tutors so you need to find something like that and just practice it and then uh hopefully you'll find something yeah you need a system that works for you and there's many different diagramming styles out there but what everyone has in common is that we all draw diagrams we all diagram the rules we all make a main diagram and we all draw local diagrams and i don't think there's anyone out there who's an lsat tutor or coach who who dismisses drawing local diagrams. This is too much to do in your head and to try and do everything in your head and just look at LSAC's description of the rules and setup is is not going to help you. It's going to hurt you because you need to be able to articulate things for yourself just as if we might paraphrase a logical reasoning argument. We break down the logic game's rules into a simpler style that we can understand for ourselves. So I think we touched on this one pretty well. You wanna move on to the next one? Okay, so how to simplify diagramming all the rules and inferences for grouping in out games. I found that I spend a good chunk of time writing out all the rules and inferences along with their contrapositives. I'd like to learn how to streamline this. So kind of related to our previous question here, how can I simplify diagramming of rules? Well, in particular, for grouping in out games, since that's what this question is covering, it's about conditionals. Diagramming conditionals and their contrapositives and linking things together, since that's what you'll often be dealing with for an in out game. And I run across a lot of students who are using methods where they'll diagram each rule one by one, then diagram all the contrapositives, and then look to draw links between them. And this is technically accurate, it's technically correct but it may not be the most efficient way to go about it. So if you want to streamline, you want to simplify, what I recommend doing here is to draw out a rule, a simple conditional rule, 
immediately draw its contrapositive and then link the subsequent following rules onto my original rule, building the diagram as I go, rather than drawing out all the rules and then linking them later. This is a bit hard to, to just verbally describe, so I'll definitely make sure to include some examples of this in the links in the show notes. But that's my, my quick take on that. Oh, interesting. So you actually build like the diagram and the contrapositive diagram like simultaneously? Yeah. Okay. I have I have uh, basically the same approach except I do one and then flip the whole thing. But uh, I'll elaborate on that. But yeah, so to answer this question, I would say like, I love it when people ask me this because this is one of like the biggest wins people can get on logic games. Uh, when you spend a whole chunk of time reading the rules and inferences, just actually just don't do it. Um, and you could like train yourself to do this by uh, doing a setup where you're only allowed to have the final diagram. You're not allowed to write out the rules individually, except for the first one. And I think you'll be surprised to see that it just naturally happens. I have never once had a student who comes to me with this question who didn't immediately learn how to just make a chained diagram right away. Like this is not some, there are some things in the LSAT where, you know, you can tell someone how to do something, but it takes like lots and lots of practice to do it. This isn't one of those cases. This is actually just, you can instantly win and make a chain diagram. So what you do, what I do is like, say there's a rule that's like J arrow K. Then I'll write down J arrow K. And then usually the next rule will have a K in it, but I'll go to the next rule that has a K because if there is a K, it can be linked. And so if it's J arrow K and then K arrow L, I'll just write arrow L at the end. So I've got J arrow K arrow L. Or if it was not L arrow not K, so you know it's like the contrapositive, you just, you could write the contrapositive separately to get it back into the K arrow L form and put it on the diagram. But just know that like, everything can be joined i mean there are a few games where like there's two things and they don't all join but usually stuff can be joined together so don't draw out the diagrams and the contrapositives um just join them together like i i think one thing that can happen in lodge games i mentioned this on a previous podcast is that you can get kind of like a learned helplessness because when you first do it it's just like so hard you do everything so wrong that you feel like you can't do anything and that sticks with you even when you hit easy challenges. So this like writing out all the rules is like, well, I, I, I can't do this complicated thing, so I gotta write them all down. Uh, actually, in this case, you don't. Um, you're you're actually, like anyone listening to this podcast is smart enough to make a chain diagram to get go, I guarantee it. I have never seen anyone, even someone in like the 140s, like everyone gets this. It's, um, I, I don't mean to say that, you know, everyone gets this when they're being shown by me, the tutor. So when you try to do this, you might have some struggles yourself. I don't mean to say that you're dumb if you try it and it doesn't work. That That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you had a tutor in front of you, you could easily get it. And so when you do it on your own, you will be able to get it. It might take a little bit of doing, like watching some videos or something and some some trials because like it's always going to be a bit slower on your own, but you are certainly capable. Yeah, absolutely, Graham. I think that this is something that every student can get with practice. And if you don't have a tutor, watch video explanations, read written explanations, but this is something that is actually one of the, the relatively more intuitive things on the LSAT. If you have a grouping in out game with lots of conditionals, I agree that in the vast majority of cases, you'll be able to link all the rules together into big conditional chains and their contrapositives, or at the very least, you'll be able to link a couple of them together. And you link them with the common, with common variables. If you have J arrow K and then not L arrow, not K, you can link those together. If you take the contrapositive of not L arrow, not K, it'll become quite smooth. 
And so trust that, that, that this will happen and trust that it will happen enough to the extent where you're not writing out all the rules and then linking them later. If you link them as you go, the benefit there is that you're, nothing you wrote down will be extraneous. Everything you write down will end up becoming part of your final diagram. And the nice thing about that is it saves time, it saves space, and you end up with your end result immediately upon writing down the final rule. I wanna to touch on something else you said, Graham, which is about skipping around with the rules. Absolutely. If you had J arrow K and then another rule A arrow B, and then your third rule, not L arrow, not K, you could skip the second rule and come back to it later in the hopes that later you'll be able to more easily and smoothly link it onto your main diagram. There's no reason you have to write down the rules in the order they're given to you. And this comes back to, again to my idea of skipping around a bit, but you can skip around to the point where you write, you do things in the order that works best for you. Yeah, and uh, I just wanna elaborate when talking about you know choosing which rule to go to, the thing you wanna know is like, if there's a K in two different rules, you can link those. Um, so obviously if you've got like J or OK, K or L, it's pretty straightforward to link them. You just link them on the K. It's where there's a contrapositive or a negative or whatever, it's more complicated. So the point of skipping around here is that just know that if the same letter is there twice, you might have to do some fiddling to take a contrapositive or whatever, but it will link up. Um, one thing I want to address is like why this is a common challenge for people. I think the reason maybe that it is is that on most games, just like drawing the rules is actually like a good strategy. Like just draw rule one, draw rule two, or at least it's a passable strategy. And so that's like what you get into the habit of doing. But then when you hit a game like this, where it's actually like totally the wrong strategy, it just seems like a really hard game where actually it's easy. So it's just like a modification of the approach that's needed. But one thing that I took from games like this, and I think it's these games that taught me it, is that actually like on every game, it can make sense to do the rules out of order. Because I rarely actually just write down the rules one, two, three, four. That that can work because you can write them more concisely than uh, LSAC has done it. But the optimal way is actually to start with rules that like can go right on the diagram or that are simpler, and then save some of the harder rules or the more complex rules for later when it might be more obvious how they make a deduction uh, once you've already drawn like the base of everything else. And so I'm I often go out of order with the rules and think about like what's the most efficient way to approach them. I want to caution that this is like a bit more of an advanced strategy. Like you need a bit of an intuition for games before you can see like, how should I go out of order on like other types of games? But just know that that's like a thing that you can do once you're getting to like a more advanced level. Like you don't just have to, even though I usually like going in order on, on this one case, I do diverge from order. I think that's a great insight, Graham. Like the idea of distinguishing rules, you know, concrete rules versus more abstract rules. The concrete rules you can articulate, you could put them down, place them on the diagram, place them on the side, they're done. So that's a conditional rule. That's a rule saying that K can't go on five. That's a rule that says L must go on three or that two variables or three variables must be blocked. But then if you have a, a rule that's more abstract, if we go really abstract, like there's a, I think in test 47, the, the circuit load panel game, where the, the about the number of switches that are on and off being the circuit load, that's more abstract. You might put that on the side. You might not even have a clear way to articulate it overall. But yeah, save that one for last. Get everything else put down at first, and then maybe you have to hold that more abstract rule in your head as you go through the game. Yeah, and another 
yeah, holding in your head is actually what I was going to touch on next. Because I think the reason I don't like skipping around in most cases is because I didn't have to hold around like where I'm going. But on the games, skipping around in the rules actually has a reverse effect because the main challenge of logic games is your short-term working memory, which as a human is quite limited. None of us have much short-term working memory, like the number of things you can hold in your head. So if you get rid of the simple rules, it's like L and 3. Well, like, great, I don't have to think about that. Now I only have like three things to think about instead of four. And if you can get down to just like there's two remaining rules, they're a lot easier to process. And this also applies back to the original like in-out grouping where, you know, if you're just looking at all the rules thinking like, oh, gee, how do these connect together? Like it's a big thing. But if you're just like, all right, first rule head K, look for K. That's like one thing you have to do and it becomes a comparatively easy task. And that's why anyone can do that method because you're just looking for one letter. Yeah, love it. Uh, all right. Next question is, how can I learn to remain calm and in control when taking practice tests, especially when things begin to get tricky? I struggle with allowing pressure and anxiety to overwhelm me in the middle of a section, therefore making it nearly impossible to recover in time to have a solid section. Okay, so I think, obviously this is going to depend on like everyone because people deal with anxiety differently. But I think the, the big meta thing to keep in mind with the LSAT is like, A, it's a piece of paper, and the test that you're doing right now is not actually determining anything about your future. Obviously, you want a good LSAT score. But the practice test you're doing today does nothing. Even if you bomb it and you get like, oops, I got a 130 on that test. I don't know how that happened. Like, you can still get a good score on test day. You can, like, it, it doesn't matter to have a bad day on a test. So there's there basically, logically speaking, shouldn't be any pressure. Now, that's not how anxiety works. Anxiety can come in for what seems like no reason. But I still believe that there is some like rational basis or some reason to anxiety because you don't get anxious looking at well, I was going to say like the phone book but I don't know if those exist any, anymore but you know like some random piece of paper that doesn't make you anxious the else that makes you anxious why because you're attaching your hopes and dreams of the future to it and that's why this piece of paper is making you anxious so there is like even though it's not a one-to-one -one rational process if you like reason out yourself like what is this what's the importance of this paper in my life? Um, I think you can reduce anxiety. The other thing to do is to remember that you can take the LSAT multiple times. So even a particular test day is not that important. Schools just look at the highest score, whatever they may say, the current admissions consensus is they just look at the highest, that's what they're ranked on, that's what matters. So you can take it in September, bomb it and take it in November. Like obviously you'd prefer to save the $200, but it's really not that bad. Uh, the reason that you panic generally speaking for most people, is because you fear a really bad consequence. Often it's not a defined consequence. You think like, I don't know what your mind is thinking, like it probably imagines you'll become like a hobo or you'll die or something because you haven't thought about it. Um, but if you actually like go through and think like, well, what am I really worried about? There's very little the LSAT can do to hurt you. Even if like some evil genie cursed you and you could never get more than 140, you'd probably still have an okay life. Like, it's not your ideal life, but you're not dead. You're not in jail. Um, there's probably some other career that would make you happy. So it's always worth thinking, like, what's the worst case? What's the worst case? What's the worst case? It's not so bad, actually. And, like, tell this to your mind. Write it down. Talk to people. And make it so that your unconscious brain realizes that it's just a piece of paper and that it doesn't have a fight-or-flight urgency because that system was meant for 
dealing with like a bear attack where you actually need to like what, what happens in fight or flight is like your rational thinking shuts down your digestion stops and you prepare to like run or fight and that's what's happening when you're looking at that paper because through some twisted reasoning of like looking at the consequences your mind has imagined that the paper is bear-like and will kill you and you need to talk it down from that ledge and change how you frame it and that will ultimately i think reduce anxiety Wow, Graham, you've hit this from so many angles and given so many great insights. I, I agree with you on all of them, and I definitely share some of the same with my students as well. A couple more things to think about that, that we could touch on as well, which is um, one is that it's a practice test. A practice test in isolation doesn't mean very much. Your, your aptitude or indicate, best indication of where you stand is really more about the most recent five exams, five practice tests you've taken over let's say the past few weeks or so. And so one practice test, if you get a low score, it may not mean anything. It could be, it could relate to how tired you are, your energy level, what else you've been doing that day or that week, other distractions in your life or in the room, room while you were taking that practice test. The other thing, as you said, yes, the LSAT, even your actual official LSAT test date is not your only opportunity Retaking is more common than ever before. No law schools really average multiple LSAT scores, and so there always is the chance to retake. If you have to even delay a year, that probably wouldn't impact you nearly as much as you think it would. You've gotten this far in your life without having gone to law school yet. One more year won't make a difference and could potentially open up new doors or opportunities or maybe even help you to realize that maybe law school is not the path you want to go on at all. And if you had applied sooner and gone sooner, you would have gone down a path that might not have been right for you. So those are a couple of things that come to mind related to fight or flight. Again, I'll, I'll say it as I always say, meditation, mindfulness, some sort of relaxation practice. There are apps like Headspace and Calm and guided meditations on YouTube that can be really helpful in decreasing your overall stress level. You also wanna look at other areas of your life that could be increasing your stress related to sleep, diet or exercise you want to have all of those things in line in a row so that you're in a better headspace or mindset when you're taking a full-length practice exam you also don't want to place too much importance on your exam results overall a lot of times students will take their LSAT scores as a a proxy for their overall intelligence or IQ or self-worth when in reality it is not your, your, your self-worth and your intelligence are so much more than just the LSAT. And the fact that you maybe had a diagnostic that was lower and you've improved from there just shows you that your initial diagnostic was not reflective of your intelligence, your aptitude. So why would this practice test score be either? Because you still have the time and opportunity for further improvements as well. Yeah, like LSAT thinking is part of overall intelligence, but it's almost like a module that you can learn to have alongside whatever you're doing. And so it's not like a static thing that can't be changed. So if you're in like the, like I feel bad about the LSAT because it's hitting my self-worth camp, like just view it as like a thing that you're training. And even then, if you have like a bad practice test, I mean, first of all, everybody bombs a practice test at some point. Like I've had so many panic calls from people that ended up scoring in the 170s where it's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I got like 15 points lower. What am I, what's happening? What's It's normal. Um, if you don't have that, like that's strange, everyone bombs it. There's always randomness, but even if you have a bad test, like you can still learn something from that. When you're thinking about like learning this LSAT reasoning module, like it's not about like 
where exactly am I right now in this question that I'm doing. It's more like, what can I learn from this to build the overall like thinking process that I'm working on? Um, also, I just wanted to mention about like taking a year off. The other thing that can happen from a year off, if you take a year off and get a Braille set score, is like $200,000 in scholarships because that's what a full scholarship is. And I think most people would agree that like $200,000 in a year is a very good wage uh, that beats even like first year big law lawyer wages. So like it's it's not, I mean, you can imagine like a few circumstances where someone really can't wait a year. But for most of you listening to this, you actually can. And the payoff can be high enough that it, it makes sense to take like a long run view of what is appropriate. That's a great point. So the idea of waiting a year and the enormous benefit that can come from waiting a year let's say let's say the exam is only a month or two out right now and so you just want to kind of get it over with and apply already you might not give, be giving yourself the chance to reach your full potential whereas if you were to delay your application a full year you might be able to take the LSAT six months from now and then have significantly more time to study and improve your score so that could be a, a blessing in disguise then uh, Graham the other thing you mentioned that I'm glad you brought up was the idea of getting questions wrong and the, the value there. If you get a lower practice test score, the counterintuitive benefit is that you got more questions wrong. And more questions wrong means more review opportunities. Maybe you have to get, let's say before you take the LSAT, let's say you get 500 questions wrong or 1,000 questions wrong. That's 500 or 1,000 opportunities to review questions that where you fell into LSAC's trap. And the more times you fall into their traps during your practice, the more opportunities you have to learn from your own mistakes and to see what kinds of mistakes that you are likely to make. And not just questions that you get wrong, questions that somebody somewhere might get wrong or traps that someone somewhere might fall into, but the ones that you personally are prone to making mistakes on. The real value there is that if you can make those mistakes now and learn from them now, you won't be as likely to make them on test day when it really matters. So that's why for that's one reason why I actually encourage my students to get lots of questions wrong between our coaching sessions. I'll say I want you to get 100 questions wrong between now and next week because then we'll have more review opportunities and then we'll also be encouraging you to attempt more difficult questions wrong answers are gems to be like cherished and like worked over um because they give you information in the way that like uh see here's the thing if you're getting like a 155 i guarantee that you do not fully understand the questions you're getting right either but you're never going to find out unless you're extremely good at reviewing some people are that good at reviewing um and you should strive to be but realistically uh not everyone is going to reach that level but the wrong answers are giving you information. Like there is a thing here you don't know. And that's hugely valuable. Um, there was just one more thing just related to just to expand on what you said about mindfulness. Cause like when I gave the talk at the start, it was like the big picture, tell your brain not to be afraid of stuff, but you also need like the short term um, preventing like a panic spiral thing. And if you do the mindfulness, like Steve suggested, that can really help. The other thing is just to like watch for this in the test and also like outside of meditation. Cause like, a lot of stress happens where like there's a little trigger and if you just push through it and don't focus on it, it can compound and compound and then you get into like an anxiety spiral. But you really want to like catch those things early, take a break, 
reconceptualize it. So like if you find yourself worrying about the test um, while taking the test, just remember that thing that you told yourself about like a practice test not mattering and breathe a bit. And that hopefully will help you like avert that and return your focus to the question in front of you. Yeah, definitely. Coming back to the basics, coming back to the fundamentals. So you got a, another question here. Do you recommend crossing out every answer choice I deem incorrect when taking a test? For example, on any given test I take, many of the problems will have answer choices that are not marked or crossed out. Sometimes in the interest of time, but other times because I feel like I have arrived at the answer right away. Do you believe this is a seriously flawed approach? Should I practice eliminating every answer choice for every single problem? So I guess this relates to process of elimination. Should you actually dismiss every wrong answer before picking the correct one? Probably not. I mean, do I physically cross them out? No, I don't physically cross out all answer choices. I'll often prephrase for certain questions when the spirit moves me, when I'm able to predict what I believe to be the correct answer, but I, I'll still scan the other choices typically. But if I already have something in mind and I see it in the answer choices, I'll just pick that and move on. So for me, yeah, no, I also don't eliminate everything conclusively. When I'm writing an explanation, then yeah, I think like what's going on here? How do I eliminate this? But that's not what I do in time conditions. In time conditions, I do instead what I would call like classification. And it's using like I read everything sort of like a fast read, but I'm using like the automatic processes of my brain. I may or may not have a preface and things fall into four buckets like wrong, probably not, maybe right. The right is when like I have a preface and I see it. But even then, I still keep reading. But so, you know, if I read an answer, I'm just like, well, I see that's wrong. Then I cross it out and I mark it as wrong. But I find people are a bit too eager to do this and will sometimes cross out the right answer. So instead, I think it's smarter to default to like probably not. So like it's not the one you're going to review because like I'm, pr I'm pretty lazy when I go through the answers. Like I don't want to think hard about all the things. I want to identify like two maybes and think about those. So you've, the probably not is not where you're going to put your attention because like there's reading a thing and thinking about it and then there's devoting attention to it. On the first pass, I'm just reading and thinking a bit. So most things fall into probably not. Probably one or two falls into wrong. And then hopefully one is either, oh yeah, that's right. That's correct. Or there's like a maybe or two. And then I put my attention to the maybes in the right one and I pick it that way. Um, so I'll have like probably one or two answers across per question. And just a small point, because I know some people do it the other way. I just cross out the letter. You don't want to cross out like the whole answer usually, because like I said, you may eliminate the wrong thing. Plus it takes time. So you just get rid of the letter. I find that's usually enough. Yeah. Oh, I definitely wouldn't cross off the entire answer choice, but I agree with you also. I, I kind of do the same thing. I think where I don't cross off my contenders, you know, the, the, the ones that are possible. I'll cross off whatever's I, I can eliminate out right out of the gate, whatever's definitely wrong. And then if I'm down to two or maybe down to three initially, I'll consider those against each other, but I, I probably wouldn't end up crossing them out, period, actually. I would let's say I have I've eliminated A, D, and E down to B and C. I'll go back and forth between B and C and I'll consider each of those in context of the stimulus for logical reasoning, for example. But then I'll I'll pick one of those, but I might still leave C without any marking. And one benefit of that upon reviewing later is that when I'm in post-game analysis I, or post-test analysis, I go back 
and I see, okay, well, I can clearly see that I was between B and C. Why was I considering C? And what ultimately makes C wrong in the end if B is, in fact, the answer? And I would say that when you're reviewing, then you want to eliminate all the wrong answers and think about why they're wrong. But in time conditions, for me, it's more about just like quick classify, probably wrong, probably wrong. Ooh, consider this one later, consider this one later. And then I just go back to the ones to, that I thought were most promising. Yeah. All right. I think we can end it there for today. So uh, people can find me at lsathacks.com and I'm on Instagram at Graham underscore Blake. We'll be adding all these links for where to find us to the show notes. Uh, where can people find you, Steve? Again, so I'm Steve Schwartz, LSAT blog. I'm on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can email me directly through my website. And again, we'll have links to everything in the show notes. Thanks for listening.